You can be turning in your Bible to 1 Peter. Today we'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We will read those together shortly. Just to kind of recap, last week we began our journey in First and then Second Peter. We talked a lot about who Peter was, um, what were some of the things that he did as he lived and walked with Jesus. We talked about his personality. He was um, impetuous. He was bold. He was sometimes reckless, but he was faithful and he was willing to learn. And Jesus, because of those things, uh, he got to teach us that's captured in the Gospels and in the book of Acts and different places uh, and in Peter's writings himself. We learn a lot uh, because of Peter's perspective and what Jesus got to teach through teaching Peter. And we all learn similarly. Um, we're grateful for what Jesus teaches because of Peter. And we're grateful to notice how God used a guy like that to bring about some of the things that came about in the early church. And it gives us hope, right? So that God can use um, people here that are sometimes reckless and speak out of turn and still do great things uh, when we learn the ways of Jesus. And, uh, you know, early on in Peter's life, we see, or specifically in his um, relationship with Jesus, we see that he was, like, he, he thought that there was no way that suffering and persecution would ever describe the course of Christianity, right? That he rebuked Jesus for that, and that's when Jesus called him Satan and said, get behind me. Um, but as the years passed, and as he saw the things that he saw, and as he began to write these letters, it's clear that he understood what Jesus had said about the cost of discipleship. Peter knew it. It was clear to people that knew and loved Peter, and it was clear to people that hated Peter, that would you know put him in prison and bring him before their councils, it was clear that he had been with Jesus. Even though they knew this guy didn't come from a bunch of schooling, he was a fisherman, they, they could tell that he had been with Jesus because of the power in which he preached with. I mentioned last week that Peter probably wrote these letters sometime between A.D. 60 and A.D. 68, and in there was uh, sprinkled a lot of Roman persecution under Nero. Um, So the premise that we kind of started off with last week was this, that Peter wants Christians, and that includes you and me in 2022, he wants Christians to learn and to understand how to live as missionaries. Their lives as Christ followers especially in that early church, would look very different from the lives of the people around them. And it's the same for us today. Now, what are the, the, the terms that he uses to describe their identity as Christians? We talked about these a little bit last week. You can see very quickly um, that he'll start using these terms. He uses the term exile. Jason used one this morning with the kids, sojourner. Um, Alien, I think the King James Version uses that word, not from outer space, but that just means from a different country, a different place, not your home. Uh, the term that I'll probably use most often is temporary resident. That's who we are. That's who Christians are. And Peter especially wanted these Christians who are reading this first letter to understand this is not your home. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a few moments. But how, how Christians lived and how Christians talked mattered in the world around them. You and I as Christians 
who we are determines how we live. And so our identity is important. In fact, I might say it another way, and this is your first blank on your notes this morning. As Christians, our identity shapes our lifestyle. Who we are in Christ should mold how we live. Now, I am, my last name is Omis. It gets mistaken for Ohms. So I'll give you one free pass if you say my name wrong, then I'll hold it against you. No, I'm kidding. Um, but we say Omis, and I'm really proud of the Omis name. I come from a long line of Omises over from Germany. Um, my immediately Omis family settled on in St. Peter's. Some of you maybe have driven uh, on Omis Road in St. Peter's. My family um, homesteaded there and had a big farm and all of that stuff. I'm, I'm proud of my family's heritage. I don't want it to be a prideful thing, but I appreciate the things that have been passed down from generation to generation, um, most immediately from my dad. Um, like I said, we're a very German family, and so hard work was a big part of that. Um, my mom's dad, this is a neat story, uh, we found out, um, from my mom that they built a house in um, what's now known as Cottleville and it's no longer there. That new big interstate actually goes right through where their house was, where she grew up. But the, the lumber for that house, they floated down the river, big logs down the river um, and then drug them there and built the house from that lumber. And so both sides of my family, my mom's maiden name is Tomachek have fun spelling that one. It's got a, it's got a Z and a K in it and it's, it's wild. Um, but very German in, in our, uh, heritage. And so we learned hard work. We learned the importance of family. Um, we learned kindness, perseverance, uh, generosity. All of these things have been passed down. And these are some of the things that Nikki and I hope to instill in our kids as they get older. There have been moments in my life, though, where I did not display those character traits very well, though. And, and I, would, I would imagine, I'm not trying to point the finger at all of you to avoid pointing it at me, but I imagine we've all done that sort of thing. We've, we've not really done our family's name very proud. I have been selfish. I've been rude. I've been discontent. I've been lazy. I've been inconsistent in what I've said that I would do. The way I've acted has not been a good representation of what the Omis family name stood for. Now, I mentioned this phrase last week. Peter went through growing pains in his walk with Jesus. And I think we all do. I certainly have in my life. But I I always want to make sure that my actions accurately represent my upbringing. I want to do my parents proud in the way that I live. I'm a representative of the Omis name. More importantly, though, because we don't all share the same last name. More importantly than my family's name, I am a representative of the name of Christ. As are you as a Christian. And so the way that I live ought to showcase his name in a good way. Think about that as how we live as Christians. We represent the name of Jesus. And that's why so many of the things that we preach about and work through as a church body are so important, like accountability and church discipline and and love for the body. We represent Jesus in the world around us. We should understand our, our, our calling as missionaries to live out what we say we believe. Because it's real easy on a Sunday morning 
when we're gathered around like-minded people to say, yeah, I believe that. That's, that's what I want to do and live that way. And then it's really easy to say that on a Sunday and then Monday comes and you get on the assembly line and people are using inappropriate language and it's not so easy there. So what we say we believe one way, we ought to back it up with how we live. And that's kind of what Peter is getting at here. And this is a good mindset as we look at the first five verses of Peter. Let me just break down um, the first chapter just together. And then we'll read the five, five verses and have another word of prayer before we move on. But look at verses 1 and 2. These are kind of an introduction at First Peter 1. Uh, and, and honestly, the first two verses are a lot more important than they might appear at first. Uh, verses 3 through 5 move into this uh, beautiful song of praise. Verses 6 through 12 connect the Christian's inheritance that we'll talk about today. Those verses connect it with suffering, believe it or not. Verses 13 through 21 connect the Christian's inheritance as an incentive for holiness. And then verses 22 through 25 emphasize the enduring word of God that shows us how to really love one another. Let's read verses 1 through 5 together. I'm reading from the ESV. We'll read these five verses and then pray. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into this living hope today, this inheritance for exiles, Lord, I pray that, Lord, if we have, if we have failed to represent the name of Christ well, that we'd be forgiven, Lord, and that we would go and, and live differently. As Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, he said, you are forgiven, but go and sin no more. I pray that we would go and sin no more in that way. Lord, help us to see the importance of this inheritance, the joy of it, the beauty of it, Lord, and how it's accomplished for us. We thank you for what we will discover today by your spirit, through your word. In your name we pray, amen. So verses 1 and 2, these are just an introduction. And if you've read through Paul's letters, um, this is just kind of a quick, like, this is the author, here are the intended recipients, here's the purpose for writing, those sorts of things. And we get some of that in these couple of verses. Um, we reviewed authorship last week, so we're not going to talk a whole lot about it. But Peter just simply refers to himself here as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Only in recent years... Guys, has this ever even been debated? Maybe in the last hundred years, has anybody even questioned, is this actually written by Peter himself or not? Now, you're welcome to, to kind of 
discover and research some of the different viewpoints, but I'll just say this about authorship. There's ample evidence both inside the Bible and Scripture itself and outside the Bible to be convinced that this letter was written by Peter himself, by the guy who followed Jesus. Now, notice also that he doesn't use the name Simon Peter. He, he just says Peter. Jesus said that Simon would be called Cephas or Peter right when he first met him. You can read through those stories in the Gospels. Like one of the first encounters that Peter has with Jesus face to face, Peter says, you shall be called Peter. Jesus says, you shall be called Peter. So he only refers to uh, this guy as Peter, not Simon Peter, in Matthew 16, after Peter's divinely inspired revelation and confession of Jesus, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, Peter, that didn't come from you. Okay, so he, he just uses that name, Peter. So by the time that Peter wrote these letters, he was just known as Peter to everybody. He didn't need to specify Simon Peter. He didn't need to do any of that. Talk about his old name. It was just Peter. And so that's just all he says. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus. Then... Next, he writes, he says who this is written to. He lists the original recipients of the letter, and it's this, those who are elect exiles. And then he lists some some towns of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So the dispersion here, without getting too far into Old Testament biblical history, the dispersion here is probably is talking about the fall of Jerusalem when the Babylonians conquered Judah, the Jews were scattered or dispersed. Some of them were taken captive. Some of them were sent out or sprinkled out. I think Peter intentionally includes, he's not specifying Jews here. He's including Gentiles in this description, probably because he viewed the Christians of that day that he was writing to as dispersed. They were there in the Rome area, but they had been dispersed from where they originally were. They were dispersed throughout Asia Minor, just like the Jews were scattered after the fall of Judah. And so he uses that term of the dispersion, okay? And he uses this phrase, exiles, elect exiles. We'll talk about that in just a minute. The word exile itself I think Peter uses metaphorically here. He uses the same kind of word in chapter 2, verse 11. I don't think he's just talking about the Jewish Christians of Asia Minor. I think he's talking about all Christians everywhere among the dispersed, among the unsaved, I should say. The author of Hebrews, he says it this way in thirteen fourteen: Here we have no lasting city, Hebrews says, but we seek the city that is to come. I don't think he's talking just about these particular locations on a map, longitude and latitude. I think he's talking about the, the Christians that were scattered within the unsaved people groups of that area of that time. Now, the specific cities that he mentions were probably places that Christianity had already sprinkled and, and fed out into. In fact, it could have been sort of a description of the route that this letter would have taken to get to the, the churches in these areas. We don't need to spend, I don't think, too much time on the phrase elect exiles, but I do want to say a few words about it. Elect just simply means chosen. It means set apart. It means called out. In this letter in particular, just First Peter, Peter uses this word really four times. Two times 
he uses it to describe believers. Two other times, he uses it to describe Jesus as the elect cornerstone. Okay, and those references are listed in the notes if you want to look those up. So the biblical concept of election doesn't mean that God just looks down through the corridors of time and sees that some people will say yes to the offer of the gospel and some will say no. So God then chooses or elects to salvation those whom he knows in advance will respond to the gospel. That's not what this is referring to. That kind of a view would indicate that God, when he looks down through the corridors of time, he all of a sudden discovers something new. Oh, they're going to choose to follow me. Well, then I better elect them. It's not, it's not how it works. It would indicate that God gains new knowledge in that way, but God doesn't gain new knowledge. You know why? Because all knowledge comes from God. He's the originator of it. This way of thinking about election can't be biblical because biblical authors don't teach it. That's not what Peter is saying here. It's not what Paul says in Romans 8 and 9, some of those chapters. R.C. Sproul, he says this, God does not have a crystal ball into which he gazes so that he can know in advance what decisions we will make. Rather, God knows the future because he ordains it. He goes on to say, if God did look into the future to examine the responses that people will one day make, the only response of fallen human beings to his grace would be that of unbelief. That's what the Bible teaches. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are children of wrath. So elect people aren't elect because they have faith. Elect people are elect. They are elected to have faith because of the foreknowledge of God. That's what he says in verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So Peter reminds his readers here that even though they are exiles, they're strangers, they're temporary residents, they shouldn't forget who they are. That's the identity thing. In fact, we could say this, a Christian's true identity is found in the internal appointment of a sovereign God. They are chosen of God. His people are chosen by him. So Christian, believer, the Spirit of God says the same thing to you here today through his word. You can look around, think about some of your coworkers, think about some of your family members. It doesn't take long to see and feel a little out of place, right? They make that, that dirty joke and it makes you uncomfortable. They talk about that show that no one should watch, but how much they like it. And you feel out of place, right? It doesn't take long to feel that because you're not the same that you once were. You're different. This world is not your home. You can't know and love God and be all that comfortable here. Look at verse 2 again. Verse 2 tells us that this world is not our home. Why? Because God has chosen you according to his foreknowledge. In fact, there's three things. It says God has chosen you according to his foreknowledge. That's number one. Number two, through the sanctification of the spirit. Number three, to obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood, with his blood. God's done this. God has chosen you in this way for this purpose. And I think it's Peter's intent here. So hopefully you could see the work of the Trinity here. Now that word isn't used. Hopefully you can see that he points out Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit. Right here. So we could say it this way. Look at that verse and listen with me. God's people are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying action of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus and to be sprinkled with his blood. That's it. That, that is the Trinity at work in the life of sinners and then believers. Sprinkled with his blood. If you have been in Jason Sunday School class at all, they've talked about sacrificial system at length, and there's been a lot of talk about blood. And surely, when Peter writes this way, when he talks about sprinkling with his blood, immediately the Jewish people who are reading this, their minds go back to the sacrificial system. Surely they did. Even some of the Jews who knew what the Israelites were doing probably thought of the sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, there was something called the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sacrifice some animals and he would take them, the blood of those animals, into the Holy of Holies and to make reconciliation between God and his people, he would sprinkle that blood onto the mercy seat and therefore redeem the people back to God. So Peter, amazingly, uses that same imagery here to point to the sacrifice that was made on the cross. He references Jesus' death and resurrection in the next few verses. So he's pointing to the cross, and that was that sacrifice that was made once and for all at Jesus' death. And at the cross, he completed our reconciliation with God by the sprinkling or the shedding or the pouring out of his blood. By pouring out his blood on the cross, Jesus accomplished our redemption. Glory to God. Because of this, Peter is sure that now grace and peace, that's what he says at the end of verse 2, will be multiplied to them. Grace and peace would be theirs in abundance. A clear view of election, the foreknowledge of God, sanctification of the Spirit, the redemption of the blood won by the blood of Jesus Christ, all of these things produce in the believer grace and peace, but notice also obedience to Jesus Christ. All of that culminates to produce those things in the believer. So when someone claims to be a Christian, they claim to be among the elect in essence, it's kind of doubtful if there's no evidence of sanctification and obedience. That doesn't mean you obey perfectly every single time, but is there a desire for that? Is there remorse and repentance when disobedience is revealed in our lives? If there isn't, then the claim for someone to be a Christian is doubtful. But if by God's grace you see yourself for who you are, (laughs) and you see Jesus for who he really is, you will be motivated to obey him and empowered to obey him through the sanctification of the Spirit, is what he says in verse 2. Now that's just the first two verses in this book. There's a lot there, but I don't want to stop yet. I've still got a few minutes left. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. Peter, kind of he doesn't switch gears necessarily, but he changes over into a doxology. Now when we sing the doxology, we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's familiar to you guys. A doxology is really just a song of praise. And you, you see these all through Scripture. Moses burst out into this after the Red Sea. Miriam did as well. 
Um, we see Mary burst down to a, into a doxology after being told she would have Christ, uh, the baby. Um, we see Paul do this in multiple letters, multiple times. They just burst out. It's like they can't contain the joy of what God is revealing to them, and they just they just burst out into what could be a song. And that's, I think, what verses 3 through 5 are for Peter. Now, if, if you look at this, just glance through these verses again and tell me one emotion you think Peter is feeling as he writes this. Just, just shout it out. What emotion do you think Peter is feeling? Excitement. That was the first word that came to my mind too. He was excited when he wrote, wrote these things. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice the punctuation at the end of that sentence? I believe it's the same in the Greek. It's an exclamation point. He's excited. He is, he is pumped up for this. He's talking about God's mercy. He's talking about being born again, a living hope, a forever inheritance and hope then for the future. Now, there's a shift coming in verse 6, not a, a totally new train of thought, but a shift coming. But here in these first five, five, in these first few verses, it's just excitement. He's excited. And I think there's an important clue in the middle of verse 3 that really helps us unlock these verses. When Peter considered God's mercy and salvation in being born again, he said, he knew that the motive for God's work was found in him, not in us. That goes back to the idea of elect exile, the foreknowledge of God. The motive for God's work in a person's life is found in God, in him, not in us. It's according to his great mercy, Peter says, that he has caused us to be, be born again. Not according to our faith, not according to our performance, his mercy. Through his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again or, or made new in fact, if you think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 17, about a new creation, remember that verse says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, what has come? The new, being born again. This is God's idea. This is by his foreknowledge. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he raised him as the firstborn of many brethren, and all who are in him will share in that resurrection life. And that's what he gets at in verse 3. He says, we're born to a living hope because we have eternal life in a Savior who has conquered death himself. Jesus has already beat it. He's alive, and so our hope is alive. It's a living hope because it's a lasting hope that's tied, tethered to the resurrection. So because Jesus is alive, brothers and sisters in Christ, your hope remains alive. It doesn't matter how bad things get, you have hope. This is a reality for every person who is in Christ. And look at verse 4. Peter continues saying here that through his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to what? To an inheritance that is, and here's the three words, kids, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Inheritance, Jason went through what inheritance is. Who is this inheritance for? 
Well, it's for those who have been born again. So who are those who have been born again? Elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. We're kind of working backwards through it now. See, the inheritance that Peter is describing is for exiles. This is why the sermon is titled Inheritance for Exiles. If you're an exile, if you've if this world is uncomfortable for you because of everything that goes on in it, you're in exile here and this inheritance is for you by the foreknowledge of God. Now Peter, in this, in this inheritance, he doesn't do a whole lot to describe it, but he does do quite a bit to explain what it is not. So look at these words with me, these three words. It is imperishable, meaning this inheritance cannot be destroyed. Cannot be, cannot perish. No fire can burn it up. No flood can wash it away. No moth can work its way in and destroy it. This inheritance is imperishable. Second word he uses is undefiled. It means this isn't dirty money. This isn't blood money. This wasn't, this wasn't won through any kind of like wrong way. It's not been accumulated as a result of something unlawful or inappropriate. This inheritance has been won through the perfect purity and it is protected by God in a perfect place. It is undefiled. Third word he uses is unfading, means it will not lose its luster. Nikki and I have four kids. And before we ever started having kids, um, we started talking about kid names. I don't know if you did this as, as a married couple. We had about five years before we had kids as we were married. So we had a lot of time to think about this. And so pretty quick, you know, we start, you like this, put, you like this word? Well, this name, we'll put it on the list. So she had a running list of these names. Well, guess what happened? By the time we had our first kid, which was a son, Emery. Yes. Hi, son. Um, by the time we had Emery, we went through the list of names and we crossed a bunch of them off because we were like, eh, I don't really like this name anymore. This isn't, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to call our kid this. And then our, our next child born three years later was a girl. There's, there's Lux. <laughs> All right. And, and when we came to Lux's name, we had a, a couple of names in mind. And so I remember we we're sitting in Applebee's, I think one night. She was pregnant, and we're talking about names, and we started thinking about one, and we're like, oh, we really like this one. And I, for whatever reason, I just thought, well, let's just Google it and see what happens. And I'm glad we did, because the name that we chose was tied to a person of ill repute. I'll just leave it at that, okay? And so I was glad that I didn't have a daughter associated with that kind of a name, right? It, those names, though, they, they lost its, their luster, after a few years. So if, if you, you're young in your marriage or you haven't had kids yet, sit on the name for a little while. It might, might not grow on you might, like you think it might. But the inheritance that we get because of Jesus Christ will never lose its luster. It never loses its appeal. It's never going to be, we're never going to be in this situation where we're like, you know what? I'm not really crazy about this inheritance anymore. I'm not as, I'm not as jazzed about it now as I was a few years ago. You know, it's kind of, we're never going to be there. 
The inheritance that Peter has in mind here, it can't be tainted by somebody's bad reputation. It can't be tainted by anything. It won't lose its appeal and it can never be destroyed. And Peter is making this really clear in how he's talking about this inheritance. How can Peter be so sure of this, you might ask? How can he be sure that it's it's going to be undefiled and imperishable and unfading? How can he be so sure? Well, I think verse 5 tells us. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now recognize something here, because I didn't catch this until I began studying for it. I didn't catch this in the other times that I'd read this as a Christian, but Peter isn't so much talking about the inheritance here as he is about the exiles in verse 5. Let me explain what I mean. Read it again with me. He's talking about the inheritance when he's saying it's kept in heaven for you. But then in verse 5 he says, Who, not the inheritance, but by the you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. What, what does this mean, brothers and sisters? In Christ, the inheritance is reserved in heaven for you who are also being kept by God's power. The promise of our inheritance is certain because we are kept by the power of God. This enables us to be, to, to endure through faith until the coming of Jesus. A preacher in the late 1800s and early 1900s said this, To have been told, as in the preceding verse, that our inheritance was reserved in heaven could have yielded us just little comfort. Unless that assurance had been followed and capped by this, that the heirs also are being kept for its full enjoyment. You see what he's saying here? Let me say it a different way. The power that keeps the inheritance reserved for Christians is the same power that keeps the Christians Reserved for the inheritance. Understand that you don't have to attain perfection in order to be good enough for God. You can't, you can't tip the scales of God's love for you based on your performance. Well, let me just, let me just treat this person nicely today and then God will be pleased with me and then I'll rack up another positive on the scale. That's, that's not the, that's not how God equates salvation to someone. His love for you is according, as we just learned, to his sovereign knowledge and great mercy, neither of which are affected by you. Incredibly, his mercy, though, is extended to you through the sacrifice of Jesus in your place, on your behalf. And at the moment that you receive the gift of salvation through Jesus, by his mercy, you no longer belong to this world. You are now just a temporary resident living here on this planet. You are an exile, an exile with an incredible inheritance being kept in heaven for you by God. God's power will keep it undefiled, imperishable, unfading. That's true. It's waiting there. Now it's partially been given in salvation in the gift of Jesus Christ, but there is an inheritance waiting. What a comfort though to be reminded this morning here in just verse 5 and just this little part, what a comfort to be reminded that God is the one keeping us to that day as well. He's not only keeping the inheritance reserved for us in heaven, he's keeping you reserved for the inheritance 
Brothers and sisters, this should give us joy. This should make us like Peter, just kind of, maybe not giddy, but overflowing with excitement. Where praise just spills out like it does here in verses 3 through 5. And we say the same kind of thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is that this inheritance is for exiles like you and me. And it's not because of our work, right? It's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's in the sanctification of the Spirit. And what's it for? It's for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood. Glory to God in these things. It's possible that you're listening today and and you aren't an heir to this inheritance. You've not given your heart to Jesus Christ. That can change today. It can change because his mercy has extended. You woke up this morning. You're breathing right now. Therefore, God's mercy has extended to you. Don't waste it. Trust in Jesus today and this inheritance and you will be reserved forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this, this truth that you revealed, at least for the first time to me this week, Lord. It's, it's a joy, it's a privilege, it's a blessing, it's incredible that you have reserved the inheritance. It's unfading, it is, um, it is undefiled, it is imperishable. Lord, nothing can, can affect it or change it where you have set it in heaven with you by your power. But Lord, believers are the same way. We get the same treatment. We are kept for you by your power. Lord, that is a great comfort to me because I don't, as I already admitted and confessed today, Lord, I don't always represent my name very well. I don't always represent the name of Jesus all that well. And so, Lord, it's not how, how tight I am holding on to you that matters, Lord. What really matters, what our salvation depends on is not my action, Lord, but it's how tightly you hold on to us. And we thank you that you will not let us go. You will not drop us off. You will not f- bail when it gets hard. But Lord, we also know, as revealed this morning in your word, that when we have been saved by the sprinkling of the blood, we've been saved for obedience. And so, Lord, I pray that that would describe each Christian that's a part of Ramsey Creek Baptist Church and each, every Christian that's listening today. Lord, that we would be obedient to follow the ways of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the inheritance for exiles. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.